So yes, Exodus, we're going to be looking at Exodus in some depth for these two sessions and the Q&A as well. And the reason we're doing Exodus is it is like such a foundational book for all of Christian life and thought and church and everything we do. For year, years ago, when I was young and I was really trying to study the Bible and understand theology, I remember I'd spend, I always thought the thing to do is to spend ages of time in the New Testament. I remember this thing sort of trying to get all these sort of commentaries on the letters of Paul and things like that and thinking, if I can crack these books, the rest of the Bible will be easier to understand. But it never happened. And there were loads of things I can't, I was like, what is he talking about? I don't, I, I mean, I could get some of it, but it was like as if it was only, it was, it was as if I, there's a, there was loads of things missing from what I needed to understand him. And then I kind of noticed that Paul actually spends like so much of his writings telling us, go back and read Moses, particularly Moses, and, and particularly a lot of these things in Exodus as well. And I found that when I did that and put lots of energy and time into reading those things, Exodus is the particularly our focus, but those early books of the Bible, then I found that it kind of unlocked everything in the New Testament. The New Testament, I found, was quite hard to understand until... Like Exodus going, and then I'm like, oh, that's what they're talking about. That moment of suddenly going, oh, that's why Jesus says that. That's why the apostles say that. That's why he does it that way rather than this way. That's what all of that. And so that's what Exodus is about. Doing Exodus is like laying these foundations that make all of church life and Christian theology a lot easier to understand, a lot easier. And I like Exodus because it teaches theology with these fantastic stories. It's like an audio visual. I know we're not literally listening and seeing it, but if you're imagining it, it's it's so um, vibrant pictures, images, stories, structure, things that uh, enable you to again think, ah, oh, that's what it's all about. Instead of having to sometimes, because sometimes when I find that theology is explained in such an abstract way that only kind of philosophically minded people can ever really understand it. But that's not how it's done in the Bible. In the Bible, it's these stories that explain the deepest truths of all. And Exodus does that for us. It's foundational then. And then recently I was involved in something where we were looking at what is the meaning of the death? of Jesus. And uh, they were sort of academic people involved and they were sort of saying, well, there's all often people in the past would talk about the death of Jesus in terms of blood or sacrifice or as if God ha was angry or things like that. But none of those things uh, work for us today. They, somebody was giving that impression. And the question was asked, um, but what about the way it's handled in Exodus and in these Old Testament books? And the person admitted they didn't really know anything about that. 
And I was like, it's amazing that they don't, like a person, at least they recognize that, <laughs> that they, they don't know, they kind of were saying, I guess I don't know what I'm talking about. So what we're going to see as we're studying Exodus is that if we're going to understand that, what's the big deal with the death of Jesus? Why is it that Christians, not just like British or, or Europeans, but all Christians over the entire world, hundreds of millions of people, are so focused on the death of Jesus and speak about the death of Jesus in this language of blood and sacrifice and things like What's that about? Is it just some sort of primitive medievalism? It isn't. It's all back to this book of Exodus time. And that's what we're doing. To go back to Exodus, we'll suddenly see that when people talk like that, or our hymns, sometimes our hymns have that language, that this isn't just um, human ideas. This goes right back to these foundational stories. Um, we'll find in tomorrow night's study that it even helps us to understand the structure of the universe. The book of Exodus will do that. Um, and it's interesting that uh, people in everyone in the New Testament is always going back to Moses. Jesus does it a lot. Um, and let me just give you these little examples that um, you remember Paul, when he speaks to Timothy, he says this to him. It's in 2 Timothy 3.15. From infancy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, remember, what are the Holy Scriptures for Timothy, particularly when he was a little boy? So how old is he then? I don't know. Paul's maybe writing into him. I don't know when. And he's like saying, when you were a little boy, you were brought, brought up in the Scriptures. And that might, when was he brought up as a little boy? Maybe those were in AD 20 or something, probably before Jesus had died or resurrected, or maybe before Jesus had done any public ministry at all. And yet he was brought up with the Old Testament scriptures, isn't it? That's what Paul's talking about there. And he says those scriptures, and this is what Paul says, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So in other words, he could have, he, those scriptures make you wise to trust Jesus for salvation without, but that, that was for Timothy before he'd even read any of the New Testament, right? There was no New Testament to read. I find that that verse powerful, powerful, that when we read the Old Testament, it's teaching us to be to trust Jesus for salvation. And we're going to see that in Exodus. We'll just there's another just couple of little ones. So that's the Apostle Paul says that. But sometimes people say, well, the Apostle Paul, maybe that was just his idea. Well, Jesus said it too. Jesus says the same thing in, in Luke 24 verses 46 to 47. It's after the resurrection. And he seems to spend a lot of time doing Bible studies after the resurrection, as if he's probably saying to them, you can go and tell people about what you've seen, but you need to make sure you're doing it according to the scriptures, because it's those ancient scriptures that give the authority to all that this we're going to teach. You know, the when the apostles go over all the world to persuade the world to trust in Jesus as the Lord God, the Messiah, he's almost wanting to make sure they do it properly from the Old Testament as well as with their eyewitness account. And when he does that in Luke 24, verses 46 to 47, it says this, Jesus told them, 
this is what is written. So he's going to give a summary of the entire Old Testament here. He says this, this is, his, this is Jesus's own summary of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and in his name, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That's his summary. So when we come back to Exodus, we need to come back to think, well, was he right? Was Jesus right? Is that really what the Bible is saying? Did they did, the, did Moses really write? You remember in John chapter one, there's that lovely little verse where the, uh, they go, we found the one that Moses was writing about. Well, was Moses, and they go, oh, and who is it? It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one that Moses was writing about. So Moses was writing about one person. He meant to tell us about one person, and that one person is Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, at the end, as after his resurrection, is saying, yes, that is what the scriptures are all about. They're all about me and how I must die, rise, and bring salvation to the whole world. One last one, and then we're plunging straight in. And it's that lovely verse in Acts 26, verses 22 to 23. And it's the Apostle Paul again. And this is one of my favorites that uh, he just says this. Because sometimes Pete, I heard again the Apostle Paul recently described as they said he's a brilliant innovator. A brilliant innovator. And they were hoping to compliment Paul as somebody who cleverly came up with new, new thoughts, new ideas. But actually, that's a horrific insult to the Apostle Paul. He would have regarded that as a deeply wounding insult because he didn't think he was at all original. And he wanted people to check everything he said according to Moses and the prophets. But this is what he says. Acts 26, 22 to 23, Paul says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said. That, and, he, and, he, and then he, he comes up with the same thing that Jesus said. That, so what did Moses and the prophets say? That the Christ would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. So with that in our minds, we're plunging into Exodus because in a way, there's the challenge. Jesus thinks that if you study Moses and the prophets, we will see his death, his resurrection and salvation for the whole world. The Apostle Paul agrees with him, obviously, because he's an apostle. Uh, and then we want to plunge into these scriptures with that confidence that we're saying, well, if Jesus says that's what it's about, it must be about that. And then when we do that, we find it's very satisfying uh, to come with that. And I, I will admit this straight up front. When I read Moses, I am thinking consciously that thing that Jesus of Nazareth is the one that Moses was writing about. So I deliberately read Moses. I don't read Moses neutrally as if it's possible. I read him saying, how is Moses telling me about Jesus? How is he doing that? Let, I'm, I'm wanting to tune into the intention of Moses, according to the Bible, because I feel if I'm coming to him with a different agenda, 
like pretending I don't believe in Jesus or something, that's going to be a car crash, isn't it? And I'm going at Moses, not how Moses intended. So I go with this quite conscious sort of how is Moses telling me about Jesus? I want to see Jesus. And I find that when we do that, uh, Exodus becomes quite a, a, an easy book, a thrilling book, a book in which we see Jesus. And of course, the apostles constantly quote that. Jesus quotes uh, the book of Exodus quite a bit as well. And then the um, Christians all down through the ages constantly are see Jesus in Exodus. Let's see if we can join them in doing that. Tonight, in our time together, we're just going to focus on uh, the there's loads of we're going to try and do the first sort of half of Exodus and we're going to maybe focus in on three things about it because we can't do every chapter every incident though if there are specific incidents I don't cover please raise them in the question time like there's a strange little incident where Zipporah has to intervene uh, when the Lord's about to kill Moses. I'm not going to tell you if you say, well, I want to know about that one. Get it in the questions. I'm happy to tackle that in the Q&A, but I'm not going to do that one tonight. Or all the things about the Hebrew midwives and all that. We can't do all that. Let's just jump straight in to the issue of the burning bush that's in Exodus chapter three. Because remember, the Exodus begins actually with the words um, and it actually begins with the word and as if you're supposed to go straight from the book of Genesis into the book of Exodus. And of course, the book of Genesis ends with the ancient church leaving that promised land of Canaan and then going to live in Egypt. And they're there for 400 years. And at first, everyone loves the ancient church that's in Egypt. And then, of course, there it the, this Pharaoh comes who pretends he doesn't know anything about the Lord or his people and he forgets the history of it all and then he he hates church and he oppresses them um, and then Moses stands up for his church people he cares more for church family than the royal courts of Egypt I mean Moses may well have been the next Pharaoh because he's part of that royal household and yet he's like, that doesn't matter to me. That doesn't matter to me. Far more important to me is my church family. And when he sees some pagan oppressing church, he, because he's been born to deliver church from slavery, he intervenes. But at that point, church wasn't ready for it. And they actually turn against Moses and he has to go on the run and he goes to Midian. He marries an Ethiopian wife called Zipporah. Um, and there's a whole thing we could look at that. And then he um, he has ch a, a child, which and the child um, is called really "I'm Lonely," because <laughs> he's and he's like his, his children's names bear the brunt of the fact that he feels lonely and a stranger. But he's 40 years doing that, being a shepherd, learning how to care for the flock, which is of course what the Lord is actually training him to do. But he's probably he's 80 and he's thinking, well, it's time to retire. I'll get a, a little house on the med, maybe on the coast and do a little bit of golf and uh, I don't know, get a hobby, something like that. I'm sure he's probably thinking that sort of thing. He's 80. But actually, the great work of his life was about to begin. And that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? No matter at what age we are. <laughs> Moses's great work for the Lord was from aged 80 to 120. 
Uh, and that's amazing, isn't it? None of us could say, well, you know, it, it's too old for me, too late for me to start, start, start working for the Lord. It's never too late. I was just this week, uh, or no, two or three weeks ago, looking at the example of Peggy and Christine Smith in the Hebrides who were praying. One of them's 84, one of them's 82. And then this tremendous work of the Lord came out of the fact that they decided to pray from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. Uh, two days a week five hours of prayer for two and they just did that in the mid 80s and then out of that came the tremendous revival where lots of people became Christians so I, I find that encouraging that Moses was 80 and it is only just beginning anyway what happens to him he's tending sheep on what is called the mountain of God and it's in Exodus chapter 3 if you can turn to it in your Bibles if you've got a Bible handy if you haven't got a Bible handy it's it's good to get one if you can just now because it's just nice to be able to see carefully I, I've got a new King James in front of me here but I'll perhaps reach down my NIV here we go and if you um, if you turn to Exodus chapter three, we'll just read the first six verses and then two more just quickly. Um, here we go. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Why is it called the mountain of God? Isn't that an odd thing? We might be able to think about that a little bit more tomorrow. Anyway, look what it says from verse two. The, the angel of the Lord, the angel, notice, not an angel, the angel of the Lord, appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When, and notice here again, look at all the titles that are given to this angel of the Lord, the one who is the angel of the Lord. Look at the words, the titles that are used for this person that's speaking to Moses. So Moses, yeah, I'll go up, see why the bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush Moses, Moses. And Moses says, uh, here I am. Don't come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then just quickly note verses 13 and 14, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, well, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay, so just the first thing to note is the identity of this one 
who speaks to Moses. He is the angel of the Lord. He is the Lord. He is God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's as if you're almost feeling like, oh, okay, hang on, calm down. Why are you going on so much about the identity of this one? He's like trying to use every single word and title he can lay his hand on to emphasize the divine character of this one. This is that Lord God who'd who appeared to Abraham, who wrestled with Jacob, who appeared to Isaac also. He's trying to say that one, that one, that's who I met, that one. You know, it wasn't some sort of new thing. Uh, this is the one whose uh, origins are of old kind of thing. And what's why that matters, why that matters is... If well, I'll tell you, I, I won't even like spell out for you why. Let's because now I know you've all got your Bibles handy. Get, we'll just flick to what uh, one New Testament reference. It's the only, I think it's the only time I'm going to force us to do this, but just go to John chapter eight. Uh, John chapter eight. This is why it matters that we get off to a, the, on, our, on the right foot going into Exodus. Because if we're in doubt, see, again, just recently somebody said to me. Well, um, it, it may, it doesn't, this angel of the Lord, this incident, it could just, I mean, the Lord God is transcendent. He can't appear on earth. The living God can't appear on earth. This must have been just some kind of manifestation that made Moses think he was meeting God. Now, that was so outrageous because these other gods are like that. People believing in all sorts of weird gods that are stuck in the highest heaven and can't meet with people. But the God of the Bible, what, why it's very important to know that this character that meets Moses, the angel of the Lord, is really the Lord God and truly and completely the Lord God is because everything depends on Jesus is God. That is our most basic conviction. Jesus is the Lord God. And if we say, well, God can't be present on earth, really, really, then that's it. The whole of the Christian faith is gone because <laughs> the whole thing is based on Jesus is the one mediator between God and humanity, and God completely in his fullness it is Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, that is God at full strength showing up. So that's why Moses is really concerned that we understand that he's meeting with someone who really is the Lord God. But look at John chapter uh, 8, verses 56 to 59. Jesus is speaking and he's going to say, I remember that one time I met Abraham. I remember that meeting Abraham. And notice how people react to that and then how he responds. So John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Notice what they say. See, some people might say, oh, well, that's because Abraham was looking forward in like a dream or a vision. 
that one day there'd be someone called Jesus. But notice what they say. He's and the, and it, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I met Abraham once. Because look what the is, it, people say. They go, verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham. You'd have to be like 2,000, man. You don't look 2,000. I mean, he's only 30, but they're sort of saying, yeah, you kind of look about 50. But you don't look 2,000. You can't have seen Abraham. But then Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Do you see what he's done? He said, you know, that time that Moses met the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the burning bush. And, and Moses says, well, what's your name? And the Lord God says, I am. That's my name. I am. Jesus is going, yeah, uh, I met Abraham and it was me that met Moses too. That's what Jesus is saying. And of course, these religious people know that he's saying that because verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him. They think that's blasphemous that he's claiming to be the God of Exodus chapter three. But it's powerful stuff. And I find it deeply moving that this Lord Jesus, we're not just believing in somebody who's appeared out of nowhere in the middle of history. We, Jesus is this Lord God who, who created the universe and was there with the ancient uh, patriarchs and Moses and the prophets. And he's the one, the central character from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. It is the Lord Jesus. And that when we put our trust in him, we're putting our trust into the hands of this Lord God himself, and there's nowhere safer to be. But one of the weirdest things, going back now to Exodus 3, Moses gets excited, not at the sight of the angel of the Lord, but at the fact that the bush doesn't burn up. Did you notice that? He said when he saw that there was this raging fire burning, but the bush wasn't being burned, that is why he went to check it out. Isn't that weird? Well, the, let's just think about that fire burning, but not consuming. That is actually a very deep thing that let's just stay on it for a second to chew on that. Why Moses is so fascinated by that, because if you remember back in Genesis chapter three, verse 24, when Adam and Eve are exiled out of the garden of gods, the garden of Eden, the Lord God says, you can't return here. There's no way back for you now. Uh, well, the, the, and yeah, let's leave it. He's like, you guys are not allowed back. And there's a flaming, a sword of fire with the, and these cherubim guardians have this flaming sword. So it's like there's a barrier of fire that is put up between the garden of God, the paradise of God, where God has established his home, the mountain of God, the, it's like, no, you cannot come back here. And here is this fire barrier and you can't cross it. And Adam and Eve are now exiled. You know the incident. And another glimpse of the danger of this fiery barrier that stands between the, the, the domain, the kingdom, the, the city, the, the house of God in the highest heaven. 
the, the God of God. There's um, another example of it. It's in Leviticus. We're not doing Leviticus now, but do you remember there were these guys, one's called Nadab and one's called Abihu, and they were like priestly guys, part of the high priest family, and they were ministering at this tent of meeting where the Lord was. And then they transgressed. They, they didn't take it seriously. They thought they could kind of approach the Lord without being careful, without trusting Jesus in, the, in their own mess. And it's in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. Fire, fire comes out from the Lord and consumes them, burns them up, consumes them. And that is one of these terrifying incidents in the Bible that is warning us that there's this fiery barrier between us and the paradise of God, and it can't be messed with. There's lots of incidents that we could refer to, and tomorrow we'll think a little bit about sacrifice being burned in fire and the significance of that. But can you, for now, let, can we see this thing, that there's fire, like a boundary of fire that's warning us, you can't cross this. You, it's, it, you will be consumed, you'll be killed. If you attempt to approach to the Lord God as you are in your mess, you will die in the fire. And there's lots of stories. They're like, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because our God is a consuming fire. The day of judgment. It's all about this fire of judgment coming. You know all this. And so this sense of we can't get through the fire. It will consume us. But Moses sees that the, where the angel of the Lord is in the fire the fire does not consume. Just let that stand sink in for a second. This is the ultimate fire, far hotter and more fearful than the sun, the burning S-U-N. <laughs> and yet, where the angel of the Lord is, the fire doesn't burn. It doesn't consume. And at the heart, that is the message of the book of Exodus in a nutshell, right there, right there, that where he is, we can safely approach the living God. There is a way to go through the barrier safely into the presence of the living God where Jesus is and only where Jesus is. Can you see it? It's worth meditating on. Moses was right to go and check it out. And then the angel of the Lord makes a promise to Moses. And he says, you go and set the church free from slavery. And you will, I promise you, it's in Exodus 3 verse 12. He says, listen, you will all be able to come and worship on this mountain. I will make it safe for you all to approach the father, actually, as we'll see amazing thing he made he's this idea that i can make it safe for the whole church to come near to the living god and that's a wonderful thing isn't it that if we're with jesus we can have confidence to draw near to the living god and we do not need to fear the barrier of fire the judgment that that, that would keep us out he has found a way through that's a safe way through and we're going to see that in Exodus also. Well, off they go. Off he, Moses goes. At first, he's very reluctant to go, and he's like, I'm, are you, I'm not the right man, and all this. You can read all about that. 
the Lord gives him three signs to kind of give him confidence. There's signs of um, a snake, a staff that becomes a, his staff would become a snake and then he could take it up again. Power over the serpent. Well, you've only got to have read the first three chapters of the Bible to see that to be able to have power over a serpent is a deeply significant thing, isn't it? Like the serpent, but the serpent's the great enemy that's ruined the world, lies and murder. Who can beat him? And in that little sign of the staff and that Moses can snatch it up and it's harmless. There's like a deep sign in that. There's that other thing where he could put his hand over his heart and pull it out. And it's leprous, full of disease, indicating that his heart is full of disease. It's as if he can put his hand over his heart. You'll remember this is all in Exodus 4. Puts his hand over his heart, brings it out, and it's all full of disease. And that's showing something about the human heart. The human heart is rotten and full of disease. But then he could put his heart, his hand back in and bring it out and it's completely healed. A sign that even when the diagnosis of the human heart is so terrible, rotten, wicked, dark, decayed. Yet there's this message from the angel of the Lord can make our hearts new. It's a powerful sign. And then there's that business with the Nile water could turn to blood that for them, in Egypt, these pay, this pagan nation believed, oh, well, the Nile, that gives us life. And that cannot be uh, messed with. The, the gods of Egypt are all powerful. And there's a sign to say, no, these gods are going to be judged under the sign of blood. And that is, of course, what happens. You'll remember that it's not only the, the human beings that are in Egypt that are going to be judged. But in Exodus 12, verse 12, we're told the gods of Egypt are also judged. Powerful stuff. Well, let's think about that briefly. The plagues, these plagues, we won't look at each one individually because that's a that's a lot to do. Um, and it, but what the Lord is doing with these plagues is he undermines the economy, the pride, the religion of Egypt and passes judgment on it. And in Exodus 10, verse 7, Egypt is left in ruins, dark and lifeless, barren and broken. Its creation is undone. And just one little insight into it. One of the plagues is frogs. Frogs. And you go, well, so what? What's frogs about? Well, if you look at frogs in the Bible, one of the things is Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14 where demons have this manifestation in the form of frogs. So it's got all of these signs. We won't go into them all now because we haven't got the time to do all that. But each of these signs is telling us things like that the Lord God has power over Egypt and is judging them and exposing their corruption. Just one little thing. There's these flies called zebubs in Hebrew. Zebubs. And of course, what's one of the titles of the devil? Baalzebub, the Lord of the flies. And yet it's this angel of the Lord, the mighty Lord Jesus, who actually has the power over the flies. That's a tremendously powerful thing, isn't it? Even the thing that Satan prides himself on. Say, oh, I love flies. 
with disease and death and decay. And the Lord's like, well, whatever, man, but I control them, not you. It's an amazingly powerful statement. Um, but also the Lord, if you notice, as you read the story of the plagues, does that division so that were the churches, they are not suffering the plagues, but were the pagans, if they stay away from church, they, the plagues fall on them. And you think, well, that's the easiest thing in the world, isn't it? You've got to join church. Got to join church. Church is the place of safety. Church is where we find salvation. Yeah, of course. Of course. And the Lord wanted to make that really clear. So he said, no, we're churches. The plagues will not fall. But everywhere else. So he was kind of really saying to people, come and join church. Get into the safety of church. And then when they leave in the Exodus, which we'll perhaps see tomorrow, Many people of many different nations were part of that exodus. So obviously lots of people had come and sheltered inside church. Um, the need to leave was so urgent that they, it, when, it, when the Lord does at the end of the plague say, you've got to leave now, he says, don't wait for bread to rise. And this is the point that Renee was making for us, that um, you can't, wait for bread to rise you've got to leave now now so don't just make bread without yeast just like quickly make some flatbread let's go and if a person said well no actually i kind of like fluffy bread i'm just going to wait and see and wait for it to rise i'll catch up later you'd be like that's insane why do you want to be part of this god forsaken ruin that is against the lord don't you want to be rescued by the Lord? Don't you want to walk in freedom with him? Don't you want to be part of his people as we leave? And then that issue is what matters more to you, being with Jesus and his people or having some comfort here and now? So yeast for the rest of the Bible becomes a sign of worldliness, worldliness, yeast, that your heart is stuck in this world and you don't understand the need to leave. Well, Pharaoh didn't understand that. And he, if you remember, hardens his heart um, over and over and over again. And each time the Lord, each of these plagues, he's saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. I want to show off my glory and I'd like you to be part of it, Pharaoh. I want you to be part of the Exodus. You join church. Because you'll remember many, many hundreds of years later, there was another pagan king called Cyrus. And then again, the, the word comes to him, let my people go. And that pagan king said, yeah, I will. And let me write some checks to help the church leave. And that was amazing Then he's called, a, he's like highly rated as, a, as like almost like a saint that's used by the Lord to set his people free. Pharaoh could have been like that. He could have had, had the, he could have had a right of in the Bible like that, but he doesn't. He hardens his heart. He hardens his heart and hardens his heart. Then after the eighth plague, the Lord hardens his heart and says, listen, I'm, I'm giving you over to what you've hardened your heart. I'm, I'm pushing you away from me now. I'm pushing you. You've backed away, backed away, backed away. Now I'm pushing you away. And that is why I always talk to people about Pharaoh. Every time we hear about Jesus, we are either drawn to him 
or we back away from him, but we're never left unchanged. And if we consistently keep backing away from him, and if we daily harden our hearts to Jesus, there's a point at which the Lord Jesus will just say, I, I give you over to your decision. You'll remember that Pharaoh at one point says to Moses, I don't want to hear from you ever again. And Moses says, you won't see me or see my face again. It's as if eventually the Lord says, as you say, so it will be. So it's a fearful, fearful thing that if we harden our hearts to the Lord, there comes a point where he hands us over, as Romans 1 puts it. He hands us over and says, so be it. If that's what you really want, have it. Terrifying. Well, let's just in our final couple of minutes together, um, think about the Passover. Um, at the end of the plagues, there's this Passover, and uh, it's uh, Exodus 11 says it's a judgment on all Egypt. We've seen it's a judgment on the gods, but it's all the people. Um, death, death is coming, judgment. Why is it the punishment of death? Because there is no room in God's good creation for evil. And if our hearts are full of evil, even if we kind of live a respectable life, it doesn't matter. Our hearts are rotten. There's no place in God's good universe for evil to rot away. And we know how dangerous each one of us is with our rotten hearts. And the Lord God's like, no, no, I can't have that in my universe forever. You must be thrown out. And that's what happens with this judgment on. But you see, this is the amazing thing. In Exodus 11 from verse 4, so the Lord should just throw everybody in Egypt. Everybody in Egypt should die. Everybody. Of course, that would be just and fair. They've turned against him. They're, they're not safe to be in his world. They all should die. They all should be thrown out. But the Lord graciously says, no, you won't all die. But the firstborn son in each household will die. So the firstborn son, only that one, I'll accept the death of one on behalf of many. I will let the firstborn son of each household take responsibility for the evil of everybody in that household. Can you see that? The firstborn son of each household will pay the price for the whole household. He will take the place of everybody. And that's powerful in the setting of the whole Bible, because, for example, in Psalm 89, verse 27, Jesus, the Christ, is called God's firstborn son. Colossians 1, 15, Jesus is the visible form of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn of the household of the whole world. So if we think of the entire creation as a household, there is a firstborn son for the entire household of creation. And that's powerful, isn't it? Because the Lord is saying to us in Exodus 11, the firstborn son can take the place and pay the price for a whole household. And that little picture there, can we see it? He's saying, there is a firstborn son over my entire household, and he can pay the price and take our place. Do you see it? 
And then, but there's one more element to it. Exodus 12 verses 1 to 13. Then the Lord, so he's being gracious by saying only one needs to die from each household. But then he goes further and he says, actually, no, none of you human beings need to die because you can take a lamb and not even the firstborn son has to die. You can just take a lamb and sacrifice it. And that lamb can take the place and pay the price for the whole household. A lamb could take the place and pay the price. It's all the Exodus 12 verses 12 to 13. It's a, it, and then because the Lord then says, now, if you do that and you put the blood on the door of your household, then when I come in judgment and I see the blood and I know he, there is one there who has paid the price and taken the place of everybody, I won't bring judgment into that household. I'll just pass over that household because the sign of blood is there. The price is paid. It's done. That's why it's called Passover, because the sign of the blood makes it pass over. And that's that deep truth, isn't it? Because we'll say blood, death, that seems a bit extreme. But in truth, it's reminding us that the problem of human evil and selfishness and godlessness, it does end in death and blood. It is that serious. It is that bad. We do if some if we do something very bad or shameful or something very bad or shameful is done to us, we may cut ourselves, we may even kill ourselves, or we might say, I wish I was dead, because we sense that this evil and the guilt and the shame what we've done or done to us. It calls out with blood and death. And there's something that when people just say, oh, well, we'll deal with that by talking about it and then forget it. Just try and forget it. We, it can't be. People go their whole lives with this stuff rotting inside them because they know the answer being provided isn't adequate. And so the book of Exodus is teaching us, listen, don't mess about with human evil, either that you do or is done to you. You've got to come to this only living God who can deal with it. He is the firstborn son over all creation. He is the divine lamb. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Because if we could say, well, I'm the firstborn son in my, my family, the family, the black and my mum and dad, I was the firstborn son. So I could say, well, I don't have to die because we could get a lamb. But think about the Lord Jesus. He is the firstborn son over all creation. He is the lamb of God. He has to die as the firstborn son, and he has to die as the lamb of God. And that lamb of God was promised way back in Genesis 22. Okay, well, there it is. Uh, we come to the end. Jesus, the firstborn. The story of the Passover is telling us the story of Jesus. So as we come to the end and the thing to reflect on overnight and as we read, let's try and read again in the next 24 hours the, those for that first half of the book of Exodus and read it with this very strong sense that Jesus is the rescuer. He's the one who finds a way out of slavery for his people in the ancient world, but in all times, in all places, he can find us a way out. And even when we despair and we'll say, but you can't understand the depth of a problem that I'm in. 
the guilt, the shame, the, the mess, the slavery that I got myself into. Who can break this? This one can. The firstborn, God's firstborn over all creation, the divine lamb whose blood can accomplish this, the one who can make the, the Passover, God's judgment pass over us, or to go back to that other image that I could, we could say, if only I could get into the presence of God and feast on the living God and know his love and affirmation, then everything would be right. But how could I ever approach this living God? Ah, this one, this one can make it safe to come through the barrier into the presence of God, the firstborn son, the divine lamb. And remember, Jesus doesn't do long lectures about the meaning of his death. He doesn't need to do long lectures. He's already done his long lectures in the book of Exodus. What Jesus of Nazareth does is he dies at the feast of Passover. And when they have that last supper together, do they have lamb? It doesn't say they ate any lamb. They didn't need to. The lamb was sat right there. And with that bread and wine said, here is my flesh. Here is my blood. He's saying, I am the Passover lamb. So let's read that book of Exodus and enjoy Jesus, our Passover lamb. Hand back to Owen. <laughs>